Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many. And so all that who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Lord help me. Owen Nerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You have no idea how many times I re-recorded that. Just so I could pronounce that one word moderately correctly. That's a horrible word. It's not even a real word, come to find out. We'll talk about that later. But it's really difficult. It's, oh, it's so counterintuitive. Anyway. All right. We just spent the last five weeks on the controversy dialogues. In them. Okay, there's a growing human opposition to what Yeshua is doing and claiming to be able to do. The challenges go from strictly internal, in the thoughts of his accusers, to openly plotting against his life. And, and it's in the aftermath of the Pharisees going to the Herodians, on the Sabbath no less, um, in order to find a way to kill him, which seems to have gone nowhere, by the way, that this week's section of scripture opens up. In chapter 1, he did battle with the forces of the demonic and uh, with sickness and disease. Then we see the undesignated scribes, and then the scribes of the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees themselves increasingly checking him out and challenging him, even going so far as to try to entrap him. As this goes on, he grows increasingly popular with the regular everyday Jews, the Amharats the people of the land, but not for the reasons he would desire. They seek him out not for the message of the kingdom, but in order that their desperate physical needs for healing and deliverance can be met. You know, sadly, he's being treated more like a magician than God's messenger, but it's really hard to blame them. The Jews of the first century knew hardship that most of us can't even begin to imagine. Just think of a world where one-third of your children never made it to their first birthday and 72% were dead by the age of 16. It's just insanely unthinkable. 
everyone has their challenges to overcome in being able to hear the message of the kingdom, some serious and some petty. We must always look for ourselves in each story, not as the heroes, but as the villains, as the clueless, and as the weak. The only real hero here is Yeshua, or Jesus. And that part's already taken. We don't get to be the heroes. Anyway, hello, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com posted every Friday. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. My resource list is in the transcript of part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So, this week, oops, we're picking back up where we left off with Mark chapter three, verse seven. Even though it's connected with the previous material, Mark is starting a brand new section with brand new themes for us to explore. Now, that doesn't mean the old themes are dropping off. The Yahweh warrior versus Israel's oppressors will be going on to the very end, obviously. The legitimacy of his authority, which up to now has been challenged by the self-appointed leadership, because the Pharisees actually had no real authority of their own. Um, the well, the legitimacy of his authority will now be questioned, and that'll be next week, by actual authorities um, from Jerusalem as to the source. Now, hint, they aren't thinking that the source is a good one. But we'll also have two entirely new themes, that of insiders versus outsiders and kinship relations. Which, you know, what constitutes a spiritual family versus blood relations? So we'll be discussing something called fictive kinship in the coming weeks and address some misconceptions about it. And if you want to head start on that one... Um, Context for Adults, Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relations in the Bible talks about that. I love that topic. I really do. This section of the Gospel of Mark is referred to by scholars as the first part of the way dis discourse, like the way, W-A-Y. Um, Yeshua's teachings will finally be told to us in parables. They're not just going to be, he taught them, you know, he preached to them. It's like, well, What? Matthew's like all over it, and Mark's like, that's not my focus. <laughs> but we're finally going to get to hear his teachings in parables. Um, he's going to choose his inner circle, um, as well as the inner circle of that inner circle, and he will be making his way toward Jerusalem in his crucifixion, which is why this is called the way, because he is making his way to Jerusalem. Okay, without further ado... Let's dive into the text, because we've got a lot of verses this week. Starting in verse 7, 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Why did Yeshua and his disciples withdraw to the sea? This is not the first time either, is it? Well, the way Mark records the action, it would appear that it's in response to the threat of the Pharisees and their hated enemies, the Herodians, coming together on the Sabbath to see how he might be assassinated. We have several occasions where, instead of standing firm in the face of attempts on his life, he actually decides that discretion is the better part of valor, and he escapes instead. Simply was not his time yet, and only a fool invites death when it can be avoided. So, another recurring theme here. He withdraws to a lonely place, in this case to the sea, but sometimes to the Eremos wilderness, this is the place of his strength, where traditionally Israel has been weak. It was at the sea that the Israelites accused God of leaving them and their children to die during the Exodus, before Moses delivered them by opening up a path through the sea. It was in the wilderness where Israel repeatedly failed to be faithful. But the wilderness is where Yeshua defeated Satan during his temptation and where he repeatedly retreats in order to pray and where he will soon perform other miracles in the face of his people's faithlessness and fear. Let's look at the list of regions that people have traveled from. There's a surprising inclusion and two surprising exclusions. Galilee. No shock because he's been in Galilee all this time. Um, that's the northernmost part of Israel in Yeshua's day. Then Judea, and this is the region, um, not the province, because um, if they were referring to the province, that would include Samaria and Idumea as well. Uh, so Judea to the south, where Jerusalem is located, obviously. Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem were all Jewish strongholds with large Jewish population bases under the authority of uh, Herod Antipas in Galilee and the Romans under Pontius Pilate, and that's uh, Judea and Jerusalem. Then we have Idumea, which uh, is where the Herods come from, and they were Edomites, descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, uh, who were forcibly converted to Judaism during the days of John Hyrcanus, but never accepted as equals. Now, the phrase beyond the Jordan is sometimes called Transjordan, and it refers to the land to the east of the Jordan River, which still belonged to the Roman Empire, but bordered on the Parthian Empire to the east. And uh, then, you know, people from the regions of Tyre and Sidon came as well. These were pagan areas with some Jewish presence in them. Now, Sidon is obviously the area where, um, from which uh, Jezebel originated. Now, what we do not see is a reference to either Samaria 
wedged between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, or the Decapolis, the ten Hellenized cities which were largely populated by pagans to the east of the Sea of Galilee. During the course of his ministry, according to Mark, Yeshua will travel to every single one of these areas except Herod's stronghold, stronghold of Idumea. In fact, he only travels as far south as Jerusalem, according to what we have in the Gospels, all right? Now, we see two references to a great crowd, and if you've been following all these, you might be wondering, ah, which word for great are we dealing with? Is it Egero, which corresponds to Isaiah's Rabim, or is it Polis? Well, this time it's Polis. I know. Rabim is more exciting because of all the promises in the servant songs about the servant doing great deeds on behalf of the many, but this time it's Polis. The word for crowd is a fun one. Plathos. And if you've ever seen the old, the old comedy The Three Amigos, you might remember the funny scene about the word plethora, a word meaning abundance. So the crowd could be called a great abundance. Hey, wait, does that sound like fishing language to you? Like a great catch? Right by the seashore? But alas, the verse says they came to him, not that they were following him. The scene is to remind us of a similar one after Yeshua healed the paralytic and withdrew to the sea, where many came after him. And what did he do next? He found Levi and called him to follow him. This isn't an accident. Paralytic healed, retreat to the sea, call Levi. Withered hand healed, Retreat to the sea. Call the twelve. Verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This is not a positive situation. Again, we see that he can't even preach without being mobbed. He can't even preach. What did he come for? Was it to heal? No, it was to preach the gospel. And I know that bothers people sometimes, but let's look back to chapter 1, starting in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, he goes on to preach elsewhere and does in fact deliver and heal people, but that's a side thing. Without the preaching of the message of the kingdom, all healing is just simply a super nice thing to do. But Yeshua didn't come to be nice, all right? But to deliver the message of the gospel that heaven is now invading the earth and in his person, all right? Restoration is a side effect of the gospel. 
it's a perk and a bonus, but it can't replace the gospel. These people chasing him down, they want to be healed. They want to see the miracles. This is not an organized gathering. Otherwise, he would stand by the sea without fear of getting wet. People aren't sitting down and listening. They're physically pressing in and wanting to touch him. This is invasive and pushy and demanding. This isn't allowing him to be the one in charge. This is very much a desperate, impatient mob treating him more like a magician than as a prophet. The crowds are dazzled by him, certainly. But fear and amazement aren't the same thing as faith. And, and faith is the only thing that matters. You know, I can put coins in a vending machine and push some buttons and get what I want. And, and if I've never seen one before, I can find that experience amazing, but that's about as far as it goes. It's, you know, no, it's not faith. It's no deeper than that. Verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I like what Witherington says about this in, in his commentary. <laughs> How ironic that the wrong beings say the right things about Yeshua. Oh. Evidently, just the sight of Yeshua now puts demons into a panic. Just his very appearance is now all it takes to provoke a conflict. I'm thinking it's no longer just that they recognize him when they see him, but that they're all worried and on the lookout for him. And they had it easy for a long time, okay? On one hand, they're falling down before him, probably in recognition of his superior spiritual authority, his cosmic authority, or in fear, or both. You know, we talked a number of weeks back about naming magic during the first exorcism of the man with the demon in the synagogue. Many scholars believe that the demon was trying to gain control over Yeshua by naming him. Um, you know, this was thought by ancients to give people authority over any god or demon that knew the true, they, they knew the true name of, okay? You can go online, and this is actually really interesting, and look up the myth of Isis or Ra, or sometimes it's called the myth of Isis or Re, R-E or R-A. Um, dead language, and so all the, it's, it's all kind of arbitrary. And how she overcomes him by finding out the true pronunciation of his name and using it against him. So, were the demons trying to do this as a desperate show of force? Maybe. But Yeshua's not having any of it. Why is he shushing them? Let's go back to Isaiah again. This time... Um, 52.15, and this is the beginning of the Suffering Servant Song. 
kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand this is interesting from the aramaic let's look at the aramaic <laughs> paraphrase aka targum on isaiah uh this is uh, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, though he humbled himself and opened not his mouth as a lamb that is led to slaughter. And uh, like as a sheep that before her shearers is dumb, yea, he opened not his mouth. Um, that was, that was not the, this is, the next one is the Aramaic paraphrase. <laughs> Um, he prayed, and he was answered, and ere even he had opened his mouth, he was accepted. The mighty of the peoples, he will deliver up like sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before her shearers, and there shall be none before him opening his mouth or saying a word. You see how different the Targums can be than the Masoretic text. That's the first century. That was... That, that was how it was being taught in the first century synagogues is that um, the rabbis were saying, or the, the sages, the, the interpreters, because rabbis is kind of anachronistic at that point, that none there shall be none before him opening his mouth or saying a word. That's what they're saying about the suffering servant. Okay. Now remember that although the prophets had always been interpreted in such a way as to make human beings be the bad guys, that Yahweh would defeat and destroy, Yeshua brought in an entirely new interpretation by fighting the powers behind the people, Satan and his demons. Yeshua brings forth an understanding that all creation is oppressed, not just the classically vulnerable, but all humanity, by the evil conducting things behind the curtains, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, behind the curtains. Now, although it is true that some are actively and eagerly cooperating and collaborating with the ruler of this world, and it is our job to give him dominion over less and less real estate, you know, namely people, you know, although some people collaborated, you know, we do not fight against them so much as we fight the powers behind them. I think prayer destroyed Hitler, honestly. The guy started out just mean, but he became more and more insane as the years went by, and he made some crazy decisions. He made mistakes that cost Germany the war. Crazy mistakes like invading Russia. I mean, we all know that the greatest classic blunder is never get involved in a land war in Asia. And he did it, turning an ally into an enemy for no reason whatsoever apart for um you know i i believe that i believe prayer was compromising his judgment more and more satan's power is limited god's power is not limited and so although isaiah seems to be more about people being silenced in reality it was satan and his devils who were silenced by the messiah they don't seem to die out like people do, and they're far more dangerous than people. So that's why I think they were silenced. I mean, yeah, 
Yeshua did not want them trying to use their silly name mojo on him because it, not because it might work, but because it was probably supremely annoying. But also he was having enough issues with human powers, you know, the human powers that be without being outed at this point. But scripture foretold that quote unquote kings would be silenced. And this is what Yeshua did when he didn't allow the demons to speak through and rule over the human beings he came to deliver. Man, this is some powerful stuff. <laughs> it's amazing what's right there in the scripture when we start putting the different parts together. I will be right back in a few minutes. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context. And during the break, I went outside, watered the plants, um, moved a whole bunch of dirt from one planting bed to another, put all the tools away, and, um, you know, if this wasn't pre-recorded, you know, that wouldn't even be remotely possible. But I do like to take a break between, um, between recording sessions, and, uh, oh my gosh. Today is uh, the 5th of July, and so I haven't slept in a week because my neighbors evidently have too much disposable income, and oh, jeez, <laughs> I'm so tired. And they never start until, well, that's not true. Yesterday it was all day. They mostly start after uh, 10, and I think last night it went to midnight. And it's, They're a lot louder this year, but, you know, at this point when you're hearing this, which is at the end of... End of July, you're probably not even wanting to think about this anymore. Anyways, <laughs> we had just finished... What did we just finish discussing? I don't know, because I went outside and... Oh, we were talking about the crowd pressing in. He's by the seashore and he said, Get a boat ready for me just in case, you know, you gotta... I gotta get in it so these people aren't, like, pushing me into the sea trying to... Trying to touch me to get healed. But, um... But now we're to the calling of the twelfth, which is um, going to take us back into another huge Exodus reference, which you're going to go, wow, the Gospel of Mark never references the Exodus. This is really unique. No. Okay. So I, I, I want to talk to you about um, these people who were following him, but not actually following him. And I highly recommend Richard Wormbrand's books, Tortured for Christ and In God's Underground. This quote is from In God's Underground. Now, he was a Romanian pastor in the former Soviet Union who uh, spent a, a great deal of time imprisoned for his witness of the gospel. And if you aren't familiar with him, I absolutely implore you to change that. It's, it'll change your life in a good way. All right, so he said, a man who visits a barber to be shaved or who orders a suit from a tailor is not a disciple, but a customer. So one who comes to the Savior only to be saved is the Savior's customer, not his disciple. A disciple is one who says to Christ, 
How I long to do work like yours, to go from place to place taking away fear, bringing instead joy, comfort, and life eternal. Oh, wow. That is just so profound. Okay, so all these people pressing in and touching him. Customers. Probably the overwhelming majority were um, nothing but customers. They wanted deliverance from what ailed them physically. They wanted deliverance from demons. And these aren't evil desires, don't get me wrong. But if that's all they want, that's all they're going to get, and that is beyond tragic. A person in a quadriplegic's body, confined to a bed for 50 years who knows the Savior, is in possession of greater freedom and hope than the person who went to a revival, got healed, and spent those 50 years as a world-class athlete if they didn't also come out of it with a saving knowledge of Christ. The quadriplegic can serve God, like Joni Erickson Tata, which you also need to know about her, and uh, bring restoration and emotional healing to millions, while all the athlete can do is thrill people, win a few bets for gamblers, and fill his own wall full of trophies while he's young. That guy was just a customer. He went to the rally, but came home empty-handed compared to the one who actually becomes a disciple. Now, Joni, of course, went through times of deep depression and anger, of course. But she came through it refined, and she has continued to do work like our Messiah's. She has taken away fear and brought joy, truth, and comfort in eternal life to countless disabled individuals and their loved ones. She changed people's ideas about serving God and the quote-unquote limitations of being disabled. I know that, you know, as, as being a special needs mom and as someone who has to deal with having strokes and TIAs that leave me somewhat impaired for long periods of time, um, I look at her and I never give up. When I'm feeling... Good, I just work twice as hard to make up for the times when my thinker's on the fritz. Which is why, <laughs> you know. So, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, four weeks ahead on my recordings, like right now, and sometimes I'm struggling to catch up. But Joni showed me never to allow my disability to be an excuse for giving up. I, I don't want to be a customer. He has enough customers, all right? All right, verse 13. And he, Yeshua, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. All right, so here we have him leaving behind the customers and calling to him a select few. And this is our first reference to our brand new theme of insiders versus outsiders. This says that they were the ones he desired, okay, and the Greek makes it clear that they were the ones Yeshua himself desired. So, he made the choice. Yes, even Judas was his personal choice. He called these men to him. And we know that these were not his only disciples because we also see others referred to as disciples later. Namely, uh, the 72 in Luke 10, uh, who were also sent out. Matthew 27.57 singles out Joseph Arimathea as a disciple. Um, oh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was uh, 
called one of his followers. You know, nor was it odd. It wasn't odd to have disciples in general. Okay? So, so not only were there a lot of them, but it wasn't a weird thing. The Pharisees had disciples. The Pharisees called themselves disciples of Moses. John the Baptist also had disciples. It was something beneficial that Judaism had co-opted from the Greeks. This um, really close student-teacher relationship. Only the Jews applied it to religious studies instead of philosophy. Now, although he apparently had many disciples, he did choose a core group. But why? Verse 14. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Now, much to our collective uh, surprise, he, he didn't choose them in order to be exasperated and annoyed with them, like we are. <laughs> but as, as, as often than not, or more often than not, you know, that, that actually seems to be their purpose. <laughs> but... You know, seriously, he, he chose them because he desired them to be with them. And so that he could send them out, which is what apost apostle means. It's, um, the Greek word means, uh, it can mean ambassador, one who is sent, apostolos. Yeshua wanted fellowship with a certain group of people, and he chose them. No great mystery here. He chose a group of men to form a community with. Did the community go beyond these 12? 13, if you counted Yeshua. Well, yes. Um, we see in other verses that there was also a larger and legitimate following of people like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, Joanna and the other Marys who supported them out of their own wealth. But these 12 were the core group. And he called them to be, he called them on the mountain, which is supposed to remind us of the calling of Moses and the elders to Yahweh at Mount Sinai, where they came up to him and they dined with him there. Yeshua is making a statement here. The Pharisees and the scribes, the self-appointed leadership of the everyday people, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes have rejected him, and the Pharisees have even plotted to kill him at this point. So, Yeshua calls the twelve of his own choosing as the leaders of his new community. A picture of Sinai, only centered in Israel and not in the desert, and with twelve men, probably from the tribe of Judah, Judah instead of twelve men from twelve tribe. Now, does this mean that the other tribes are being written off? No. This is symbolic language. Remember, it's, a lot of this is metaphoric, Okay. You don't just take it and say, well, this means this. It's like, well, no, that's how a modern scientific mind, and I'm speaking as a scientist here, might approach it. But we have to approach a liter an ancient text the way it would read to ancient people. We can't just superimpose our values and our ideas about what makes good literature or accurate literature on them. It's arrogant in the extreme. It's ethnocentric. It's ridiculous. It's not going to work. It's going to get us in trouble. Now, there are those who say they were all somehow from the 12 tribes, but, you know, at least four of them, and probably six, were brothers. And that just does not work out. We can't fall into the modern trap of wanting everything to line up just so. 
they didn't think that way, and so we can't read their document and force our way onto it. So, yes. He wanted them to go out and preach, and in the next verse, to have the authority to cast out demons. Um, but first and foremost, their job was to be with him. Yeshua, like Yahweh, is relational. A Messiah who is not relational and deeply embedded in community cannot represent Yahweh who is all about covenantal, relational community. So, when we try to go it alone, we are not mimicking God's character. And I am not going to lie, I struggle with this more than anything else in my world. So I'm not picking on anyone here more than myself, you know. Hmm. There were no introverts in the ancient world. It's a luxury we've come to find comfort in. Okay, verse 15. And to have authority to cast out demons. And that's a really weird short verse, eh? Yeshua not only creates community, but he also gives out authority to do the work of vanquishing the real enemy, which is not people, but demons. Powers of darkness. Not that everyone got this. I mean... James and John, oh, jeez, with their wanting to nuke the Samaritans and all, jeez. But like I always say, at least they asked first. We all know or at least suspect, I think, that Peter would have gone ahead and just done it without asking. <laughs> but it takes authority to cast out demons. And that authority cannot be demanded. It has to be granted by someone who themselves has the authority. This is very much a picture, one that will continue, again, of King David fighting his foes with the help of his mighty men. Remember uh, that two of the controversies li linked up King David and his authority. Oh, and I want to mention this verse from Isaiah, talking about re the regathering of Israel in Isaiah 54. Verse 13, all of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. I believe that this is a picture of the reality, of that reality in the Messianic Kingdom, where Yeshua will teach us all in person and not just through the agency of scriptures and the Spirit. Um, 16. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So, in the first century, you could not swing a dead cat without hitting a Simon, Shimon, and even in this list of 12 names, two of them are Simon. Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Simon the brother of Yeshua, Simon the leper, Simon of Cyrene, Simon Iscariot, Simon the magi magician, Simon the tanner. That's eight right there. And you see that each one has been given an identifier in order to tell them apart. Good thing, too, because dang, okay? It was like when I was in kindergarten, and there were like five Chrises, girls and boys. So it was like Chris C, Chris M. <laughs> but I don't know why Chris was so popular in the late 60s and early 70s, all right? Um, but Peter, Petros, or even the Aramaic Cephas was not a proper name. Petros means rock. And Cephas means stone. Um, and I don't actually mean the same thing. 
people were um, given these, and I guess you could call them surnames or uh, nicknames as a way of setting them, you know, apart for a special job because of a feature of their life, their character or appearance. Of course, you know, Peter became a person's name later because of the Bible, but it was never a name before this. Okay, verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name... Oh, no. <laughs> Boanerges. <laughs> it took me so long to learn how to say it, and then I totally forgot. Um, that is um, Sons of Thunder. Here's our first complete set of brothers, whom we already met in chapter 1. Yeshua actually gives them a nonsense word as a name. It literally doesn't mean sons of thunder in any sort of linguistic wrangling. So maybe this is sort of like when I call my cat Monty, who my children named after a dead horse, and you don't want to know. You know, I call Monty Goob. Doesn't mean anything. Short for Goober, which means peanut, but I'm not calling him a peanut. Goob is what I call him when he's being ridiculous, and it comes from a silly word that a fellow fellow guild member used to used to call people back when I was gaming online back in the Dark Ages. Uh, he would use it when he was exasperated with somebody. He'd actually call him a goob tuber, as I recall. So, and he was a former Marine, so you know what he called them could have been a lot worse. So, you know, goob is an inside name. Everyone in the family knows what it means, but outsiders might not. And yes, he is the only cat in the house who turns his head when he hears that name. But um, anyway, you will notice that this is not actually a name change. No one um, ever calls them anything except James and John in the Bible. And of course, James and John are actually English renderings of Yaakov and Yonatan with Yaakov translated as Jacob in English. In my transcript, I will be including a link to a Biblical Archaeological Society article about the changing of the name from Jacob to James, if you are interested in why that was done, and you want to get rid of some of the urban legends surrounding that. Now, I, uh, I mentioned David and his mighty men, of which there were 30, but there were three who were set apart from the rest. Here we have the exact same thing with three of the disciples in an exclusive group within the group. Simon, James, and John, or Shimon, Yaakov, and Yohanan. If this means they were the most responsible of the three, then we have some issues because Peter... Oh gosh, Peter... <laughs> You know what I'm talking I don't even need to give examples. And the, and the let's wipe Samaria off the face of the earth, brothers. I guess it just means that there is still hope for somebody like me. Verse 18. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, Andrew... And I actually know my son Andrew after this guy. I love it. He's my favorite disciple. He's actually my favorite disciple. And I'll tell you why when we get to the feedings. Now, 
He was the first to come to Yeshua, and he brought Peter to Yeshua as per John 1.40. Philip, we know, was from Bethsaida, as per John 1, verse 44. Bartholomew, we know, like, zip about, all right? But he's included in all four of the Gospels by name as one of the disciples, just like Philip. Then we have Matthew, who, were it not for the Gospel of Matthew... Chapter 10, verse 3. We would not know was the tax collector Levi, son of Alphaeus. Um, we learn his father's name actually in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So we've already seen that. And it was not uncommon for people to have more than one name. It could also be that with a new life, Levi wanted a new identity. Going forward, we have Thomas, who is called the twin in the Gospel of John, and who is famous for being smart enough to, devout, to doubt Yeshua's private reappearance in light of Yeshua, having warned them not to fall for such reports right before his death. You know, people are like nasty to Thomas, but Yeshua had literally just told them, if people say that they have seen me and they see me in the, upper, in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Or out in the desert, do not believe them. Well, you know, Thomas was, he listened. He listened. Okay. Then um, we have James, the son of Alphaeus, which is also the name of Levi slash Matthew's father. Do we have two sets of brothers here? Or do we have three? And if Thomas was the twin of another disciple, does that make it four sets of brothers? Interesting theory, but entirely unprovable. But cool. Next is Thaddeus, who is called Judah, son of James, in uh, Luke 6.15 and Acts 1.13. Then Simon the Zealot, not Canaanite, as some versions and teachings will tell you. All right. The word is Canaan in Greek, which is the transliteration of the Hebrew Kana. We will see this pop word pop up in later rabbinic writings as Kanaim. Those who are zealous for the law, not a Canaanite. Yeshua was liberal compared to many of his contemporaries, but none of his disciples were anything but Jewish. And last, and certainly least, Judas Iscariot, who really needs no introduction, unless you've really never heard this before, which, so maybe you haven't, but we are told he is the betrayer. Hand-picked betrayer, actually. This is the first overt mention that something is going to go terribly wrong from a purely humanistic point of view. There were two villages uh, named Kiriot, one in Judea and another in Idumea, and possibly a third in, um, in Jordan, modern-day Jordan. Um, was Judas the great-grandson of forced converts? Was he simply the token disciple from Judea and the represent, representative of the rejection in the South? I don't know. Was he one of the Sakari, the assassins, at this early date? I sincerely doubt it. Because um, it doesn't say anything. It does say he was a thief, okay? But these men, important thing here, are never set up on a pedestal for us. Not ever. They are us. More than us in a, 
more than us in a lot of ways, but in their flaws, they are so totally us. The disciples are all so flawed that no one would make the mistake of worshipping them after the fact. They serve as a counterpoint to Yeshua's perfect, you know, perfection. Perfect perfection, right? And as a beacon of hope that, that God can and will use anyone. And this is the new leadership as Yeshua has been rejected by the old leadership. That's what the five controversy dialogues were for. Leading up to this, Yeshua did his miracles in front of practically boards of inquiry. Okay, and he taught in front of boards of inquiry. Um, and they rejected him. You know, at first just in their in their minds thinking the thoughts, and at the end, actually, the Pharisees go into the Herodians to uh, find out a way to assassinate him, and the language is very clear that that's what they were looking to do. Okay, now, everything that happened in today's passage happened because of the rejection we witnessed in each of the five controversies, you know, or four of them. And next week, the most serious charge yet will be made. That not only is Yeshua in league with Satan, but the spirit operating in him is not holy. So we'll be talking about the much debated and unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, the thing I like about when Mark talks about it, he just absolutely flat out defines what it is, unlike uh, other places. And uh, So that's the importance of knowing the entire Gospels, and, and not just one, because you see the different stories supplement each other. I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.